This is a message by Pastor Mark Fox of Antioch Community Church in Elon, North Carolina. For other sermons from Antioch, you can visit the church website at antiochchurchnc.org. Now, let's turn our hearts to the Word of God. Um, we're going we're gonna to read today out of Genesis uh, 14. Mark's going to be uh, preaching from verses 1 through 16. Um, he gave me permission to skip verses 1 through 10 and just to sort of summarize it. He's going to go through and give the ori- origins of all the kings and the countries and the roots and all that stuff. Um, but to summarize it, uh, there were some kings who battled multiple times over the years. Um, those kings included the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah. They uh, ended up having peace uh, for 12, I believe it was 12 or 13 years, and then decided they were going to rebel again, and shocker, Sodom and Gomorrah was part of that. Um, they were defeated. As they were defeated um, and were leaving, we're going to pick up in verse 10. Now, in the valley of Siddim was full of bitumen pits, and as the king of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. Then, then, who, then one who escaped and told Abram in the Hebrew, who was living in the, in the oaks of Mam, Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and of Aner. I may have gotten that right. Um, These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and brought, also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. Amen. Thank you, Jason. How many are on the struggle bus this morning? Raise your hand. I like that, Jason. I'm going to remember that one. I'm often on the struggle bus. Can't find my way to the exit. Okay, well, this, this sermon is entitled, General Abraham Goes to War, so I changed the words to Father Abraham. Okay, work with me here. Here's how it goes now. General Abraham had 138... Okay, that's, that's a little clunky. Let's do it like this. General Abraham had just a few men, just a few had general... Okay, let's do that together. Ready? General Abraham had just a few men, just a few had general Abraham, and they never lost... Okay, that's it. That's right, guaranteed classic to the top of the charts. They were 1-0. and oh. Look, this is a side of Abraham in our study of Genesis. For you guys who are visiting, we're in the book of Genesis, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And this is a part of Abraham we have not yet seen, have we? Guy's got some chops, right? And I love this story. It's action-packed, something for everybody. Grab your popcorn, wonderful ending, the good guys win kind of story. But let's back up and see the whole thing at three main points. Revolution begins, rebels routed, General A. Okay, that's where we're going. Now, you can't tell the players without the scorecard, but even with the scorecard and with a map, 
especially when you can't see, it's going to be hard to do that. But I asked Jason to do whatever you want to do with those names because they're pretty tough. I'm not going to read them either. But here's the story as far as I can tell. Four pagan kings that live up in the Mesopotamia area, up in the north and to the east. Four pagan kings form a coalition, and they put their thumb on five pagan, these are also pagan, pagan kings that live below them to the south and the west in the Jordan Valley. You can see that area there, Abraham's in the middle. That whole area there is controlled by five pagan kings, right? And so this coalition is demanding a regular ba- on a regular basis a tribute from these five kings. They said, we're bigger and we're badder than you, and you're going to pay us every year. You're going to give us money, and you're going to give us produce. If not, we're going to come, and you're not going to like it, right? It reminds me of what happens sometimes, even today, in cities around the world, and maybe even our own cities, where there's a cartel or a mob, right, that strong arms the local businessman that says, you're going to pay us money for your own protection. Yeah. Protection from whom? Protection from us, right? That's how we're going to do this. And then, and then the, the movie plot I love is when the business owners come together and say, all right, we're not going to take this anymore, and they take it to the bad guys. Or they just hire Denzel, right? And Denzel, the equalizer, comes in and takes care of the thugs all by himself. So that's what's happening here. After 12 years of being under the thumb of this coalition, which was led by a name that is, is interesting, Cheddar Laomer. Cheddar Laomer. I think he was called Cheddar for short because he was the big cheese. I mean, let's just face it. He, he heads up, right? He heads up the four kings in the north. And then when the five kings decide to rebel and stop paying their tribute, it works for a year. You know, they, they get one year off. Their 13th year, they're free. They don't have to pay a tribute. Nobody comes knocking at their door. It's cool. And then Cheddar says, no, no, no. We ain't playing that. And so the, five, the four kings come together as a coalition, and they muster their four armies, and they begin their campaign to put these southern rebels back under their thumb. All right, so that brings us to point two, the rebels routed. Again, the map. You can see the strategy employed by the coalition. What they do is they start in the north, and they come all the way down to the southernmost tip of the region, which is a wilderness area, which is right, below, right above the Red Sea. The Red Sea, the northern tip of the Red Sea, is right down there at the bottom of that map. They come all the way down on the Transjordan, on this side of the Jordan. There's, the, there's what's called the King's Highway. It was there then, and it was, it was there in Jesus' day. They come down the King's Highway on the eastern side of the Jordan, and they conquer every city they come to, right? And they get to the bottom, and they d- turn around and start going back up on the west side of the Jordan River, and they ta- take out the Amorites, and who were the other ones that were, uh, that were in there? The Amorites and the Amalekites. In other words, what they're doing is, before they meet the five kings, and they know the five kings are going to come to battle with them, before they even meet them, they take out every possible ally in the region. Pretty smart, right? They're saying, none of these guys are going to come to your help when we face you in battle. It's interesting because never in a million years did they consider that one old sheep herder with a few men, they're going to have to game plan for. 
They never think about Jehovah God because they don't believe in Jehovah God. They don't think about God's people because they don't believe in God. You know, it reminds me of Psalm 10. I think Psalm 10 could have been written for kings like these guys and for people like Vladimir Putin. Here it is. In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. That's my prayer for what's going on right now with Ukraine. For the wicked boast of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. (laughs) And saints, we know the truth, right? There is a God, just one, and he is mighty, and he's not to be toyed with, and he's not to be rebelled against. Because it will not end. So the, the five kings have heard the reports. They gather the troops, they, or, or the four kings. They, they, they meet Cheddar and the army in the valley of Siddam. Or the five kings meet Cheddar and his army in the valley of Siddam beside the Salt Sea. You see that in the verse there earlier in the text? It says the Salt Sea. We know that as what? Right. Thank you, Jeff. Guys, you know what sea in Jerusalem is filled with salt? What's it called? There you go, Dead Sea. It's dead. Nothing can live in it. So the route is on, and the armies of the five kings are soundly defeated. These four bullies from the north take them out. And, and Moses tells us, interestingly, that the valley there is full of bitumen, bitumen. I've heard different pronunciations. There are pits that are black, sulfurous mud pits. And don't be confused, you can fall into one of those even today and not be seen again, right? It's like quicksand, except it's tarry substance that you can fall into. And so what's happening is these, these five kings and their armies were fleeing. It says some of them fell into the pits. And it makes it sound like some of the kings fell into the pits. Well, we know that the king of Sodom didn't because he's going to meet with Abraham later. Him and Melchizedek, that's next, next week. But, but, but there were men who died in those pits. So what happened here? John Calvin thought about this years and years ago, about 500 years ago. And he believed that some chose to die that way. And look at this quote. I like this. He says, some expound that they'd fallen into pits. It's not probable. Since they were by noon means ignorant of the neighboring places. They knew these pits. They knew where they were. Such an event would rather have happened to foreign enemies. Others say that they went down into them for the sake of preserving their lives, but hello, you can't preserve your life under a pit, but just for a few seconds. You've got to come back out. I, however, Calvin says, understand them to have exchanged one kind of death for another, as is common in the moment of desperation. As if Moses had said the swords of the enemy were so formidable to them that without hesitation they threw themselves headlong into the pits. Now, if that's true, and we don't know, it's not a point of doctrine to argue, argue over, but if that's true, this was a terrible battle, and these were terrible enemies. They did horrible things to the men they captured, especially if they could capture kings. So maybe that's what happened. Well, what, what happens is these four kings take possession of everything, and it mentions Sodom and Gomorrah only. They probably had loot from all the towns that they'd conquered, but Sodom and Gomorrah were probably the wealthiest, the most prosperous, and they took everything from there that they could, but they also took people. They started back to their homeland with people that they had captured, and one of these people was named what? Lot. Now, isn't it interesting that last week we talked about, in the last two weeks we talked about how Lot had chosen the land and he moved towards Sodom. He pitched, pitched a tent 
near Sodom. Now where is Lot? He's in Sodom. Isn't that interesting? Lot's got tired of living in a tent. He said, now I want one of those nice stone houses I see over there in Sodom. I mean, I know that's a cesspool for sin. The people there are wicked, but man, I'm tired of living in this tent. I'm going to move into Sodom. Guys, think about it. If Lot had not been in Sodom, there's a good chance what? He wouldn't have been captured. They weren't, taking, they weren't caring about the people out there in the wilderness in the tents. They took everybody in the, in the city. If that had not happened, Lot would not, I mean, Abraham would not have had to take his men and go to battle. But he did because Lot didn't, didn't live outside the city. So that leads us to my favorite point, General A. Oh, yeah, there he is. That's an actual photo. Now, this is a story, this is a story of life rescued. Isn't it interesting that on Friday, perhaps millions of lives were rescued? Amen? And everybody said, Amen. praise the Lord. So one of the men who had escaped went, found his way to Abram. He, is not, he made it through the battle, and he, he escaped. And so he went to Abram and told him the story. Now notice in the text, we didn't read this today, but in the text we see in, or maybe we did. Yeah, he did. You read this. Uh, verse 13, he is called Abram the Hebrew. Are you taking note of first mentions? This is one. This is the first mention of Hebrew. Now, we've seen the name Eber, which is the root word of Hebrew. I'm, of Hebrew. But this is the first time that Abraham is mentioned by Moses as a Hebrew. Remember, Moses is writing this, these five books, the Pentateuch, in the wilderness during the 40 years when they're wandering around the wilderness. He's writing these five books to tell the people where they came from, all the way back to creation. And so here he recognized, he, he said, hey guys, this, this guy Abram is a Hebrew. He's your ancestor. You came from him. So Abram, the Hebrew, and he was living by the oaks of Mamre. Interesting, the word cho choice here from Moses. I don't think there's any mistake because he had said Lot was dwelling in Sodom. And the word there means to literally settle down and make a place your home. This is my dwelling place. I'm here. I'm, I'm planted here. Living, the word in Hebrew for living, for Abram, he's living there means to pitch a tent. Literally to just make a temporary place for yourself because this is not where you're going to finally live. I think that's very interesting because in Hebrews it says that Abraham was living in tents. Because he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Isn't that great? Abram, thousands of years ago, didn't care about houses. He could live in a tent because he knew his final resting place was not going to be in the ground. It was going to be in heaven, in a city built by God. He understood that by faith. And we know that by faith as well. So because Abram was in a tent, he was free to get up and leave when he needed to. And he was certainly free to muster an army for a particular mission. And that's exactly what Abram does. Again, we see a different Abram here. Jeremy taught a couple of weeks ago about Abram in Egypt. Remember, Abram told Sarah to lie to the Pharaoh and to the people there. Why? To save himself. He was afraid he would lose his life. And now... He gets up an army of just 318 men, and maybe these other guys that were living there with him helped him, but a small army to go against this powerful army, he risked 
his life to save Lot. I mean, we read these stories and go, of course he's going to win. I mean, this is Abraham, and, you know, he's the man, right? But no, this is 318. Maybe they had 1,000 people. Who knows? 1,000 against multiple thousands, mighty armies of people who knew how to fight. So it's an interesting story. You know, the other thing about Abram is that when Abram heard that Lot had been captured, what could he have said? I mean, think about it. Well, you know, I really feel bad for Lot, but you know what? He made his bed, (laughs) and now that's been taken from him, and him with it. Too bad, so sad. I'll pray for him. I'll ask the Father. No, he didn't do that. As soon as he heard that his kinsman had been taken, he said, send the message that I have a particular set of skills. No, as soon as he heard the message that his kinsman had been taken... He goes into action. You know, his first instinct was to risk his life in doing so. One of the places Cindy and I saw in London that was really cool, I sent you all a picture of it, was it's called the Memorial to Heroic Self-Sacrifice. It's a real place in a place called the Postman's Park. It's a public monument. It commemorates ordinary people who gave their lives. They died while saving someone else's life. And, and, and I just looked at a few of them, but one that stuck out to me, that just struck me, was a boy, 10 years old, who gave his life. He drowned in, in the Thames right near the London Bridge while saving his companion. This happened in, in 1894. And there's the, the marker for John Clinton. If you look up John Clinton and just put in, you know, drowned near London Bridge, you'll read his whole story. It's amazing. This kid, that was not his first rescue. His baby brother set his curtains and himself on fire when John was younger, and John put the fire out, put the fire out on his brother, rolled him on the, on the, on the rug, and, and, and got bad burns on his arms and his hands in the, in the effort. So here's a 10-year-old who gave his life and saved another. And here's a phrase I really like from verse 14. Look at, the, look at verse 14 again, and I'm going to condense it for you. Here's what verse 14 says. When Abram heard, he led. When Abram heard, he led. May that be our character as well. He was not passive. He acted immediately. He took initiative. And then he says, look at the verse. He led forth his trained men. Another first mention. In fact, this is an only mention. Trained men. Only time in the Old Testament this phrase occurs. He led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as death. Who are these guys? How many children at this point does Abraham have? That would be zero. So these are not his children. They must have been children of servants that helped him and worked the herds with him or whatever. And these kids grew up in his house and he has trained them. And they have seen and they've gleaned from his faith, his discipline, and his courage. He's trained them how to respond to authority, how to work under command. He's trained them how to work as a unit. I mean, these guys sound like Special forces trained. These sound like the Navy SEALs of the Jordan Valley in that day. It's amazing. And it's incredible 
to think about how Abram had the forethought to train up men in his, in his household to help him defend when needed. So they pursued the four kings. These guys would follow Abram to death if necessary, but they pursued the four kings. As far as Dan, I did the math on this, looked at the map, figured it out. They went at least 120 miles. Now, did they go on foot? Did they have horses? We're not told, but even on horses, 120 miles is a long way. But they chased these guys until they caught them in Dan. And again, if you look at the map, look at a map. Dan's way up in the northern part. And, and they, 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 they went on this journey with a lot of risk, and they finally located the enemy. So what does Abram do? He's got a small army. They've got a massive army. He divides his guys up, right? What a, what a tactic. This is military tactics, right? Because in those days, how did they fight? In fact, even in the Civil War, how did they fight? How did people fight? In rows, lined up, facing each other, and just mowing each other down. He knew that he had no chance against these guys. So he divides his guys up, and they come from three or four different areas at night. Again, not in the daylight, at night. And so the combination of those tactics and nighttime attack took the armies by surprise. They were probably drunk. They were probably celebrating their victory and enjoying the spoils, etc., and we don't know, but whatever happened, the strategy worked. But what really gave Abram the advantage in all of this, saints? He belonged to the Lord. I, I love it. Before this, uh, he, God says to him, All the land that I, you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. He said that to Abram before this. After this, he says, Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. And you know what? That's true for you and me too, isn't it? God won the battle. God won the battle. He used men to do it, but he won the battle. They defeated the enemy. They chased them all the way to Hobah, which is north of Damascus, at least 40 miles. So again, they've come 120 miles. They beat the enemy, and then they chased them out of the region. Get out of here. Don't come back. 40 miles. And then they rescued Lot and all the other people who had been taken by the enemy, and they started the long journey back to the Jordan Valley. Can you imagine the, the celebration in those camps as they made their way back 160 miles back to home. Lots of rejoicing, lots of laughter, lots of thanksgiving. Lot, Lot could never have been more excited and more happy to not be in the clutches of that enemy. You know, it reminded me of Winston Churchill's great speech before the House of Commons on August 20th, 1940. Remember the Battle of Britain? The Royal Air Force, this is the, the, the Air Force of England, had fought the German Luftwaffe, their Air Force, for eight months. And England had been destroyed in so many ways, but they had survived. And so Churchill gets in front of the House of Commons to give praise to these men, and there were more of them, but that's a picture of some of the men who were in the Royal Air Force and this is what he says. I love this speech. The gratitude of every home in our island. I wish I could do his accent. Anybody want to try it? In our empire. And indeed, throughout the world, accepting the abodes of the guilty. I like that. The guilty aren't grateful. Goes out to the British airmen who, undaunted by odds, unwearied in their constant challenge and mortal danger, are turning the tide of the world war by their prowess and their devotion. Here's the best sentence. Never in the field of human conflict was so much owed by so many to so few. 
All our hearts go out to the fighter pilots whose brilliant actions we see with our own eyes day after day. So what do we learn from this event in Abram's life? It's basically just a story today, but I think there's some things in this story that we need to take away with it. Okay? One might want to write these down. Imprint them on your brain. Number one, we will face trouble and trials in our pursuit of God. Everybody said? That's right. Paul said, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. It's a promise. And I love this one. We can't wait until they're grown up to train them. If they're growing up in your house, it's your call, it's your responsibility, it's your privilege, it's your duty by God to train them. Don't you think Abraham was so thankful that he had invested what needed to be invested in those little boys, those toddlers and those little boys and those teenagers, training them to become warriors for God? What do you think? Is it hard on the front end? Everybody said, yeah. Is it worth it on the back end? Those of us who have grown children, is it worth it? Amen. Nothing like it. Don't wait. Don't wait till they're five. Don't wait till they're four. Don't wait till they're three. Don't wait till they're two. Start now. Next, what do we learn? We who follow Christ must use what we've been given to uphold his name and glory. Abram had men. He had men who were trained, he had resources, he had wisdom, and he used what he had to, to bring glory and, and to God. And number four is the best one. God's undefeated, which means we can absolutely trust him to defend his own cause of righteousness. Not just for Abram, but for you and me as well. Well, you know what happens next, right? So if you, if you don't want to miss this, come back next Sunday because we're going to talk about this strange fellow by the name of Melchizedek. And who was this guy? Or who is this guy? And lots of thoughts on that. And I don't have the definitive answer, but we'll talk about it next Sunday. It's a great time, great meeting, and lots to learn from that. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful this morning that we serve a God who... is not intimidated by the thugs and the tyrants of this world. And Lord, we know that in our own hearts, we can be a thug and a tyrant as well. And, and, and thankful that you have apprehended us. You've captured us and rescued us uh, from sin and made us a slave to righteousness and called us into your, your family. And thankful, Lord, that you are our defender and our shield, that we need not be afraid we simply need to trust and obey and walk out what you've called us to do. And Lord, continue to help us to do that day by day as parents, as husbands and wives, as business people, as educators, as people in the community, as neighbors. Lord, help us to use what we have been given for your glory, for your name's sake. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Mark Fox of Antioch Community Church in Elon, North Carolina. Antioch meets every Sunday for worship at 10 o'clock a.m. at 1600 Powerline Road in Elon. You can download other messages by Pastor Fox at antiochchurch.cc. You can also learn how to order his books or subscribe to his blog at jmarkfox.com.